Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, all that it tells us about you and your um, marvellous acts uh, to end suffering and pain once and for all uh, in and through your son Jesus. We pray that we would uh, hear your words today to us and uh, we pray that it would uh, change us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So from the book of John, chapter 11, starting at the beginning and right through to verse 45. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who, performed, who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, now, there is so much suffering in this world. Lord, we're reminded of that every day in our own lives. We're reminded of that on the news uh, this weekend so vividly. Help us now, Father. Help us, we pray, to hear your word. 
to know you truly in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus and we pray that you'll help us now uh, to have our response to the suffering and evil in this world shaped by him. And we pray that in his name. Amen. I wasn't sure whether to start with a cartoon again this week, but I did last week. We looked at Charlie Brown. I don't know if you remember. Uh, I couldn't resist because this one's so apropos to our topic. We've got uh, Charlie Brown up there, uh, good old Charlie Brown, and he's on his baseball team, right? Charlie, this is another ongoing sort of thing through the Charlie Brown talks. He says, nine, nine home runs in a row. Good grief. We're getting slaughtered again, Schroeder. I don't know what to do. Why do we have to suffer like this? Uh, and then Schroeder walks away and wistfully says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Charlie Brown says, what? And then Linus pipes in from the other side. He's quoting from the book of Job, Charlie Brown, seventh verse, fifth chapter. And actually, the problem of suffering is a very profound one. And, and Lucy, in her, Lucy Van Pelt, we met her last week, in her sort of typical brash style, says, if a person has bad luck, it's because he's, he's done something wrong. That's what I always say. Then Schroeder comes back. That's what Job's friends told him, but I doubt if... What about Job's wife? I don't think she gets enough credit. Then Schroeder says, I think a person who never suffers never matures. Suffering is actually very important. Lucy says, who wants to suffer? Don't be ridiculous. Uh, I think that's Linus again. No, someone else. But pain is a part of life. Linus says, a person who speaks only of the patience of Job reveals that he knows very little of the book. Now, the way I see it, and then Charlie Brown in the middle with his head going back and forth, and at the end he just says... I don't have a ball team. I've got a theological seminary. <laughs> and you can just picture it, right? These, uh, the, this this uh, team of kids sort of philosophising about suffering uh, in the world, all, all because they're uh, getting slaughtered in the, in, in the game. Well, <laughs> uh, the issue of suffering is, of course, one that people have grappled with for millennia, right? It's one that people... Uh, we, we've always uh, grappled with this question of suffering, what does it mean for us, and particularly those who believe in God? What does it mean for belief in God? You don't have to look uh, too far to see it's a much deeper and rawer reality, isn't it, than a baseball team sort of philosophical chat between the guys in the Peanuts crew? Of course it's much. I mean, the world is reeling, right? We're all aware of that, and we've mentioned it a few times. The world is reeling at the news uh, of the events in Paris, we should probably be reeling a little bit more as well about the news of similar attacks in Beirut just the day before. Uh, they're fresh and raw. Um, but at the same time, uh, it is, is it not just the tip of the iceberg in terms of human history, human suffering? Suffering is plastered over the pages of history. The 20th century is just a testament to that, right? If you know your 20th century history, the suffering caused by the wickedness of people was on full view through that. But not just then, today, millions of people are starving simply because of corrupt governments that don't give them the food that they need. Not just human cruelty, though, natural disasters. I mean, we could go on and on, right? Uh, every Boxing Day... I remember, you know, it sort of comes back to me that day 11 years ago when the tsunami hit Indonesia. Um, many of us were on holidays there, and it sort of just jolts you out of, <laughs> jolts you out of that, doesn't it? 
All those, though, they're kind of out there, aren't they? This reality of suffering and evil and, um, yeah, in the, in the world, they're kind of out there. But we all know that uh, there's the everyday kind of suffering that we all experience, right? Um, everyday loneliness, fear, sickness, a diagnosis you ter- that terrifies you, uh, the anxiety and depression that grip you, uh, grief at losing someone you love, suffering relationships, tensions in families, breakdown. You, I mean, you could just go on and on and on, right? <laughs> and uh, each of us have our own story with suffering. And we're, uh, so, friends, we're, I mean, we're, uh, we're, it is a, such a significant and deep issue for us, isn't it? And it's natural. It's a natural question on one level. You can understand the question. How does all this, all this suffering, how does it fit with a good and powerful God? How do we make sense of that? How do we think about that in the light of the gospel? Friends, if you're asking questions today, maybe you're hurting yourself. Um, maybe for you it's a, a, an intellectual sort of question, trying to grapple with the, you know, the, the, how to fit it all together, how to make sense of it. Uh, maybe, on the other hand, though, it is a more deeply personal one, something that you're experiencing right at the moment or you have in the past and it brings up deep sort of wounds. You are among friends here and you're so welcome. We, uh, we are a group of people who, who many people, most people struggle with this, with this question. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the intellectual sort of question because that, you know, that's important to think through. Um, we'll spend the first little bit about that. Sort of how does this, you know, on a more intellectual, philosophical level, how do you hold, think about these two? Uh, for, I, I suspect, though, that where the rubber hits the road, the real question for us is the more deeply personal one, the heart issue, and we'll spend a bit more time on that as we journey through this chapter in John 11. My hope is for all of us, friends, that wherever we're at, for each of us, that we will be able to encounter Jesus today. We'll be able to encounter Jesus. This incredible account from John's Gospel, this biography of Jesus. This, uh, Jesus responded to suffering, friends, in a totally unique way, in a mind-blowing way, uh, in a way that changes everything for everyone. And so I hope that we won't be getting or thinking through sort of, you know, neat, pat answers to things that box everything in and then leave you sort of unfulfilled. Uh, that's not what Jesus gives us. He gives us something much better, much brighter, much more liberating and wonderful. So, but we'll get there. Uh, but as I said, so, you know, there is a genuine intellectual problem here, isn't there? How can a good and powerful God exist in a world of suffering? How can they, how can they exist together? The, the, the kind of um, so-called problem of evil is classically put like this. It's up on the screen if you want to see it there. Uh, point one, if a good and all-powerful God exists, there could be no evil unless he would have a reason to permit it. It's a bit of a complex sentence, but do you get the idea? If, if there's a God who is both good and all-powerful... Evil doesn't fit with that unless there's, he has some sort of good reason for it. The second point, 
clearly, <laughs> as you know, this in, we don't need to talk very much about this, evil exists. Uh, it, uh, it exists. The third point, uh, so on, on this sort of uh, this way of thinking, there is no reason that would justify God permitting evil. So, so goes this um, argument. There is no reason that would justify God permitting evil and therefore God doesn't exist. <laughs> therefore God doesn't exist. This is sort of a, a, the, I guess the classical um, you know, way this is put in different ways, but this is essentially it, right? Good, powerful God, presence of evil, he can't have good reasons for it. Therefore, there is, you know, there, there is no good or good or powerful God. But did you notice something in here? There's something that's snuck in here that's really important uh, and we need to expose and, uh, and underline. There's a little assumption, a big assumption actually. It's to do with this third point. Uh, there is no reason that would justify God permitting evil. Uh, it assumes, this argument assumes that that's the case. It assumes that there is no reason that God could permit evil. And you see, uh, this is just one sort of thing, it's an important thing to say and there's much more to say, but do you see how um, in the end that's an incredibly arrogant claim to make, that you know all of the possible reasons that God ought to have, and there, there are no, he cannot have any good reasons for permitting suffering. It's not saying that we can find out all the reasons. And friends, it, just sort of as an aside, a lot of damage has been done by Christian people, it seems to me, uh, who have tried to link particular suffering with a particular reason. Uh, and if you've hurt, been hurt by that sort of line of thinking as if something you're going through is definitely because of something you've done or you haven't done. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not, that's um, not the gospel. It's a kind of cruel and insensitive way to respond to suffering, and it's exactly what Jesus doesn't say. Okay, if you, you want to follow that through, Luke 13, verses 4 and 5, he, he, basically Jesus teaches the exact opposite to that. <laughs> so this idea that it's sort of like karma, right? You, you get what you give and... Every bad thing is because of some bad thing you've done. Bit of an aside. Okay, but all, all this is saying that, uh, is that while we might not be able to see any reason for God permitting suffering, we can't ever say that there could never be any reason. I know that's a bit complicated, but if God is God and we're not, he has to be great enough, transcendent enough, to have good reasons that we can't possibly think of or we can't possibly fathom. Um, this is, this is un an unsatisfying sort of line of thought for me. I find it a bit un sort of personally unsatisfying. But it's all, it, all it is is a logical argument, right, that says logically this argument doesn't really... It fails. It, it assumes that you could know everything about God's reasons in the world, which if God is God, you can't. But friends, the problem with evil is, uh, what I want to do now is just actually, uh, I don't know if that's helpful for some of you, if this is an intellectual sort of um, thing that you're wrestling with, and that's good. Uh, but the problem with evil is actually a much 
Uh, bigger problem is a much greater problem, I want to suggest, for non-belief. There are problems, you know, there are problems with um, uh, and things that we need to grapple with, but it's actually a far bigger problem. If there is no God, if nature is all there is, well, um, this is a, quite a famous little line from a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. Uh, just uh, listen to this. In a universe uh, of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Do you see that? Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And, I mean, do you see what that means? <laughs> if you take the position of unbelief in the face of suffering, it means you have no reason to be outraged by it. Absolutely. You, you, I mean, it might, be, uh, uh, it might be sort of unpleasant for you, but at the end of the day, if the universe is governed by blind, pitiless indifference, so what? So what? Uh, the strong eat the weak. You might not like it. You know, it's sort of inconvenient for you if you happen to be the weak. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's just a few chemicals bashing up against a few other chemicals. Really? It's not evil in any meaningful way. What's wrong with strong nations eating weaker ones? Really? So all I want to suggest here is that the problem of evil and suffering is actually a far bigger problem if you take God out of the equation. You have no reason to think that suffering is in any way in itself something that is evil. It's just what is. There's no reason to think that. There's no right to be outraged by it if without God. Uh, evil, in fact, I think, proves that you know there is a God, a transcendent reality. Well, okay, friends, uh, a few thoughts on the intellectual side of things. I know that's not where everyone's at, <laughs> uh, and that's fine. Uh, we just want to try and address both of these things, though. Um, uh, but we are going to move on, though, to what I think, and you know, sometimes I think we actually can hide a more deeper personal thing behind the intellectual problem. Uh, and sort of the intellectual trying to grapple with it can become a bit of a screen for what's going on really deep down. We're hurting from very deep and real suffering. So suffering in God... Uh, is a deeply personal, it's not just an intellectual problem, <laughs> it's more fundamentally and deeply a personal problem. But the key question of this, friends, is this. When you're thinking about suffering and God, the question is, what God are you talking about? Which God? Which God are you talking about? And a lot of the, I don't know if you've had these sort of discussions or thought much about it, but in a lot of the discussions, uh, you kind of have this philosophical concept of God who we imagine a perfect being with certain qualities and we kind of sit back and think, how could that thing that we imagine fit with a world of suffering? But friends, Christians don't play that game. We don't believe in a God of human imagination. 
We believe in Jesus. We believe in the God of Jesus. And Jesus' incredible claim is that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, look at him. Look at Jesus. He is what God is like. And so when we stop playing the philosophy game and when we start looking at Jesus, something incredible happens. We see something incredible. We don't get the kind of nice, neat answer to the problem of evil that would satisfy the philosophy department, right? We get something far better. We see in Jesus the God who suffers, who takes on suffering into himself. Suffering isn't alien from God. He takes on himself in Jesus. And this is unique. Friends, this is unique to the Christian gospel. Suffering uh, suffering doesn't... There's a lot of gods out there that this problem is a bit of a, a, a sort of smackdown for. You know, a lot of the gods out there don't fit with suffering, but not this God. The one true God who's revealed himself in Jesus, this God isn't incompatible with suffering. What he did changes everything. So, look, uh, I know that's a long introduction, much longer than we'd normally have. We've thought about some of those intellectual issues. Uh, if you're someone who, for really, uh, this is just more, much more a deeply personal one, um, even if you're someone for whom it is also an intellectual one, we, we need to look at God's word here and we're going to look at this story of Jesus and Lazarus. We'll walk through it, we'll sort of skim through it and pull out some really, I think, important things for us as Jesus' people in the light of suffering. It points to something that is... Incredible. So if you've got your Bibles open, Luke 11 there, uh, John 11 there, sorry. Uh, there's, the scene opens uh, and we hear about this man called Lazarus. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus, we're told, is sick, right? Uh, the sisters, they know something about Jesus. They, in fact, we find out later they're his good friends. They know who Jesus is and they know he's different. They know he can do something. So they, they send a message to him to come uh, and it's not, like we said, it's not just a, a stranger. When the messengers come to Jesus, they say in verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love. This is a close friend of Jesus. But then, I don't know if you sort of pick, you know, pick this up as we read through, uh, things get weird at this point, right? <laughs> things don't go as you would expect. Jesus' good friend who he loves, is sick, he's suffering, he's facing death. And, well, look at verse 5 there. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Keep that in mind. He loved them. Verse 6. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. Do you get the, (laughs) the kind of... What is going on here moment? Like, he loved them. He obviously has power to heal Lazarus. But it says he loved them, so he stayed where he was two more days. What is going on here? Well, we skipped over that bit in verse 4 there where Jesus says he, he, he sort of knows, he has confidence that this isn't going to end in death. Um. Maybe it's just a kind of misplaced confidence, you know. He kind of thinks a, bit, a little bit too much of himself, so he just holds back and waits. 
But no, I mean, obviously that's not the case, right? Something far bigger is going on. Jesus knows Lazarus will die. And he could have stopped it. Do you get get that? He knows Lazarus will die. And he could have stopped it. What's more, we're told he, he lets him die because he loves him. I mean, if, just take that in for a moment. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so he waited. It is shocking, right? But do you see what's going on here, friends? <sighs> Jesus is claiming that there is something even better that he can give Lazarus, even better than taking his sickness away. He's going to show that he has power not only over one sickness, but over the great enemy itself, over death itself. And he has a purpose. He says down in verse 14, he says, I'm glad, or verse 15, to his disciples, he sort of tells them Lazarus is dead, verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. He's glad he wasn't there to save Lazarus. Why? So that you may believe. Everyone knows Jesus could have stopped Lazarus dying, but he says it was good he wasn't there. Why? So they would believe. There's, friends, there is one thing that is more important than Jesus healing his friend who he loves, his good friend. And Jesus knows that there's something more important even than that, and that's for people to believe in him, to trust him in the face of all the suffering and mess in this world, to stake their lives on him as their only hope. Well, we've already had hints, haven't we, that something deeper is going on. Uh, Jesus, we, we read earlier, he knows this won't end in death, but that doesn't mean that it won't go through death. Uh, in verse 11, uh, we read uh, that for Jesus, death is like falling asleep, right? He says, our friend Lazarus is falling asleep and I'm going to wake him up. Just think about that, friends. Do you get what's going on here? <laughs> Uh, there is something bigger going on than just Jesus healing his good friend. And he does it because he loves him. He's going, he's going to wake him up. For Jesus, death is just falling asleep. Think about that. For us, it's so final, isn't it? I mean, we know that's ridiculous for Jesus to say that. It's offensive, right, to, to say that. Or it would be if Jesus wasn't who he says he is. We'll just, uh, we'll just skim, uh, flick your eyes down for that next little section there. Uh, Jesus goes, right, he, he ends up going there and uh, he sees Martha and Mary, these two sisters. Martha comes to him, says in verse 21, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But she still trusts him. He says, I, look, I know God will give you whatever he asks, or whatever you ask. Uh, then Jesus reassures her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And for Martha, she's like, she says, well, of course he will. I, I'm a sort of orthodox Jewish believer. I believe in the resurrection on the last day. You know, all people will be raised. 
Uh, but Jesus says, no, Martha, that hope, it's not, uh, Martha believes in a far-off hope of a future resurrection, but Jesus says, no, Martha, it's not far off. Your hope isn't far off. It's standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. Do you believe this? And then Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and then as you read the story, Martha goes off and gets Mary uh, and Mary comes back. And this is interesting, isn't it? What Martha kind of needed was a bit of a theology lesson, you know, like Jesus talks her through the, the theology. Uh, but what Mary needs is something different. <laughs> she, Mary just, Mary needs Jesus' tears. And verse 32, she runs to him and she falls down in despair. Her brother's dead. And she says the same thing as Martha. If you'd been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. Then in verse 33, he sees her weeping, sees everyone weeping, and he's deeply moved. It's a strong word. It kind of has behind it, he's actually angry. Jesus, he's angry at death. He's angry at what this death has done to his friends. Uh, he's angry about it. I mean, but just, he, he knows in a couple of minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's, even two minutes is too much for Jesus. He's angry about death. He knows that it's not the way things are supposed to be. And friends, do you see how without God... Without Jesus, you can't say that. Without Jesus, you can't say that. But with Jesus, every instinct of yours that says death is not the way it's supposed to be, with Jesus, it's shown to be true. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is angry at it. He's not just angry, though. He grieves. And that incredible verse, verse 35, uh, the famous English poet, John Donne, if you're sort of a bit of a poetry fan, you might know about John Donne. Uh, he came when he wrote about this verse. He, said, he talked about the people putting numbers to the verses, you know, like um, uh, the original manuscripts didn't have verse numbers in it. Uh, someone later on had gone through and edited and sort of put the, you know, put the verse numbers in to help navigate the Bible and all of that. And John Donne talks about the person who was going through John's Gospel and he gets to this verse and he says, whoever did it, whoever put the verse numbers in, seems to have stopped at a, in an amazement at this text. Whoever did it seems to have stopped in an amazement at this text. Jesus wept. There is not a shorter verse in the Bible nor a larger text. Isn't that beautiful? There is not a shorter verse in the Bible nor a larger text text. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, friends, but for John Donne, there's no larger text. It says something incredible, doesn't it? Jesus, the God of the universe, come into his world. The word became flesh. He knows suffering himself from the inside. But friends, uh, as we sort of come towards the end of the story, 
We, just, we need to see not, that there's even more than that. I mean, that's incredible on itself, isn't it? That the God of Jesus knows suffering from the inside. That is wonderful. But he doesn't just sympathise with you in your suffering. He doesn't just know it. He doesn't just... I mean, that is wonderful, right? That, to think that God knows what you're going through. Because he has suffered himself in Christ. It's wonderful. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't, if it was just a sympathy with us, it'd kind of leave us in our suffering still. He doesn't just grieve over death. He defeats it. He doesn't just have tears. He has victory. And that's what you read as you, as you read on. Uh, the simple instructions and really uh, great to hear that read out before. Jesus just calls out. He gets, uh, uh, has the... The tomb rolled, you know, the stone sort of rolled away from there. And he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And there's a beautiful little line, isn't it? The dead man came out. The dead man, I mean, he was dead. You know, he was smelly dead, right? He'd been in the tomb for four days. No doubt about it. He was dead as a doorknob dead. The dead man came out just at Jesus' word. It is incredible, friends. No one acts like this. No one. It's amazing. Uh, But it points, I think, to a far bigger picture, doesn't it? It sort of taps in this, taps in in such a powerful way to the big story of the Bible. The whole question that we agonise over about where does suffering come from? Where does suffering come from? Well, it doesn't come from this Jesus, right? From this God of Jesus, whose heart is to save. The the Bible's answer is where does suffering and evil come from? In the story of the Bible, it comes from us. The world was made good. Not part of God's original plan and intention. No death. But from the beginning, humanity turned from God and rejected him as their Lord, as their ruler, as their king. And that rejection kicked everything out of order. Everything. It brought chaos and death and suffering. There's a really famous story. You might have heard it. Um, the, uh, the English sort of writer G.K. Chesterton, you might have heard of G.K. Chesterton. Uh, it's a long time ago, I think early 20th century. The Times newspaper um, invited people to enter essays to answer the question, uh, what is wrong in the world? And so Chesterton wrote a postcard back to the, you know, you, he was, everyone was expecting a long, complex philosophical essay. Chesterton wrote back, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong in the world? I am. I am. Well, the story of Lazarus doesn't just tap into that past. Where does all this suffering come from? From our rejection of God. It doesn't just tap into that. It points forward, doesn't it? It points forward to how God responded to our rebellion Not long after this, Jesus himself faced an excruciating death. 
the one who had power over death, who could just say the word, come out, right, and the dead man comes out, that one let himself die. He took the death we deserve on himself on the cross and he burst out of the tomb. But his resurrection was an eternal one, right? Lazarus, he was raised again, but he had to face death again. Lazarus had to face death again, but not Jesus. Not Jesus, the author of life, defeated death by taking it in himself and extinguishing it, taking the world's suffering and sin on himself. And just like the needle, right, the needle and thread going through the shroud of death, Jesus bursts out the other side. And this needle, it doesn't, you know, it's not a, not a great analogy in terms of sewing because it doesn't dip in and out, right? He just goes through and keeps going. And he pulls everyone connected to him with him. See that in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The Bible story, doesn't, the Bible story ends with a wonderful hope. This is where we are heading, friends, if we are connected to Jesus. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They are trustworthy and true. So, Friends, why believe in God in a world of suffering? I want to ask a better question. Why believe in the God of Jesus in this world of suffering? Jesus shows us, friends, a God who knows suffering from the inside. Not only that, he shows us the God who has defeated it and who promises this future, right, he promises this future, a world with no more crying or tears or pain, no more news, waking up to the news in the morning of terrible things overseas, no more getting that phone call you dread, no more a future free from all of that. A world of life and peace in which God's dwelling place is with man. And the key issue through the Lazarus story and it comes up again and again if you read it, is will people believe in Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus? That's how you get connected, right? That's how you hop on the thread of Jesus to entrust your life to him, to believe in him as your Lord, your King, the one who loves you and died for you so you could have life. Friends, uh, it is wonderful news. Today is a day of hope. In the face of suffering, 
Jesus says to you that he is the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in him will live. There will come a day when that will be too late, friends. But not today. Do you believe this? Jesus' question to Martha is exactly the same as his question to you. Do you believe this? Well, if so, you can face suffering, not with despair, not with shrugging your shoulders, but with a hope for the future that will spur you on in the present to live for that future. Let's pray together. Uh, Our Father, um, we just touched on so many deep things today. We pray, Lord, I pray above it all that you'll uh, show us more deeply, each one of us, wherever we're at, show us more and more deeply who Jesus is. Uh, Show us more wonderfully the hope that we can have in the light of the gospel, in the light of the good news of Jesus, faced with a world of suffering and evil. You will convict us, Father, of our part in that, of our turning away from you, and that you will drive us to faith in Christ, to faith in Jesus, to believing in him, to trusting in him, to putting our all in him, to connecting ourselves to him in the certain hope that just as he has been raised from the dead, so will we, to enjoy life with you forever. And we pray that for your glory in his name. Amen.